When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds and the majority of the 2024 Republican Iowa caucus goers don't believe Biden legitimately won the 2020 election. We have such a great show for you today. Run for somethings. Amanda Lippman tells us about how down ballot races will make a difference in the 2024 election. And we know this could be tight. Then we'll talk to Protect Democracy's Ian Basson about protecting democracy. But first, we have the host of The Lawrence O'Donnell Show, MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Lawrence. Great to be here. It's so great to have you. And I feel like I actually think I was watching the returns. I mean, I don't know. They called it with 1% reporting. That's not my choice. I disagree with my industry on this. I don't think there's any reason to rush it, especially in a, I mean, could you have asked for less suspense in the outcome of any voting process in American history? There was no prize awarded for you know, who was the first to say it's all over. But yeah, people were still voting in Iowa, you know, and it's an early finish anyway. I don't get it. I just don't get it. I thought, you know, DeSantis was very angry about it and posting about how dare they. And, you know, that's the one thing I agree with DeSantis about. The Ronald Reagan election victory in 1980 
was called by the networks before the polls closed in California. And so that was the first, I think, of these truly outrageous things and by the networks. And like most of us, they're incapable of learning. Yeah. United States of amnesia. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because I'm like on this Gore Vidal kick and every time you go back and also Christopher Hitchens, like they wrote some of these pieces 20, 30, 40 years ago, even though the stakes are not quite as high, a lot of the problems are the same. Yeah. And isn't it weird when you read uh, older things like that to discover that there used to be smart people before us. Like, we're, what? <laughs> what? They had smart people before? Oh, how'd they do that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Hitchens is a really good example of someone who, I don't know, he just looks at things in a very interesting way that makes me want to look at things in an interesting way. Yeah, there was a pure coldness to his logic, and there was never the slightest attempt to accommodate anyone disagreeing with him. And that was not considered offensive. That was considered a perfectly legitimate conversational approach. And there were people, I know people who knew Chris, who sharply disagreed with him, who never felt uncomfortable in that kind of exchange. And now, you know, so much of what we have to say has to do at the simultaneously take care of the people who are disagreeing with us as we're saying it. Yeah, there are things that we can learn from Iowa that are insane and disturbing and also, I think, a little bit hopeful. So first for insane and disturbing, NBC News Iowa entrance poll did Biden legitimately win in 2020. Eighty percent of the Haley voters say yes. Forty percent of the DeSantis voters say yes. And six percent of the Trump voters say yes. Yeah, so the entrance uh, and what will now be exit polling from primaries uh, that you see in the era of Trump are simply intelligence tests. That's, that's all they are. And they didn't used to be. It wasn't an intelligence test, you know, when you were getting Romney voter exit polling, you know, or McCain voter exit polling. It wasn't. It was simply a disagreement about taxation. It was a disagreement about how big government should be, how much government you can afford, and abortion issues and gun issues. And it was not an intelligence test. And now it is. And Trump's the stupidest thing that's ever happened in American politics. And, you know, if you're with him, you are not necessarily stupid. But what those polls show, those entrance polls show last night is that you are in an extremely stupid group. Everybody, if you're not stupid in the in the Trump section of the Iowa caucus, pretty much everyone around you is profoundly stupid and pretty deeply and intensely racist at the Hitlerian level, since 81% believe, uh, as the CBS poll showed, that 81% of Republican primary voters, which we have to remember is a subset of Republican voters. It is just a subset of them, but it is the most extreme of them. And 81% of them believe that Trump is right, that immigrants poison the blood of this country. Nikki Haley's parents were immigrants. She is the poison blood. She has it in her, the poison blood that Trump is talking about. She's transmitted the poison blood Trump is talking about to her children. And 81% of the people who Nikki Haley is trying to get to vote for her believe she is walking poisoned blood. So the ceiling on that candidacy uh, is most clearly described by that poll uh, more than more than any other. It's impossible for her to get anywhere close to the nomination among those voters. 
Yeah. It's a certain amount of incredible wish casting to think that somehow you're going to be able to put in someone who she's ultimately really what America. I mean, again, I am not a fan of her policy, but she's made it in America, right? In a way that, that you know, that our great grandparents did, the way that this is meant to work, the whole country. And the idea that somehow these people who voted you know, who got very involved with Trump because Trump touched that fourth rail of racism that Republicans pretended not to believe in. I mean, it's kind of an amazing bit of wish casting. Yeah. And, you know, she's a standard Republican candidate. She comes from a long line of Republican candidates like her. And what she's done is she has adopted Trumpian views where necessary or stayed silent on them. You know, Nikki Haley's position on tariffs, which she hasn't said a word about, will no doubt be functionally identical to Donald Trump's. And that's a 100 percent reversal of the Republican Party position on tariffs until Donald Trump came along. And she looks to a lot of people, I think, like a normal Republican candidate. And, and that's true. But it's a normal Republican candidate who's adapted to Trumpism in many policy corners that go unnoticed. A lot of us assume that she would behave like a normal Republican if she lost, but there's ample evidence to suggest that this authoritarian streak, while it runs through DeSantis, why wouldn't it necessarily run through her? Well, I don't think it would because she's rational. Here's the rational part. She knows this. You know, she's elected governor. The first thing you do, the first thing you have to do after an election that you win is work on getting the people who didn't vote for you, picking up as many people as possible who didn't vote for you. So, you know, Richard Nixon wins in 1968 by less than 1% of the vote. Okay. It's a, it's a cliffhanger. They don't call it until the day after and all that. Right. So four years later, he wins uh, 49 sets. You know, Ronald Reagan, the same thing. Well, what did they do? They spent the entire time trying to get votes they didn't get the first time. That's all they did. Now that you can't get everyone, right? But there's some margin, there's some margin. And so it's why, one of the reasons Trump has been so laughable to me since he won in 2016, I was waiting for the day, you know, was it going to be a week after the election or when was it going to be the day when he started speaking to the voters who didn't vote for him and he never spoke to them ever. Right. And so the next time he loses, he, he loses the vote by an even bigger margin than he lost the vote in 2016. And what's he done since then? Well, he's gone even farther away from the voters who didn't vote for him. And so Haley will not do that. Haley will be a a Nixon, Reagan, you know, Bush. That's what you do. When you get elected, you start working on picking up two or three or five percent of the people who didn't vote for you. She will do that. And so that's where she is. And she's also going to have a dysfunctional uh, Congress, basically, you know, that won't be able to deliver very much. So there's not much she can do. She certainly won't spend 10 seconds of her time pressuring the Israeli government to possibly be more humane in their approach to the situation in Gaza. And what she might or might not do or support doing with Ukraine is likely to be much closer to Biden than to Trump on on Ukraine. I'd put it that way. What you're talking about is a really interesting point about Trump's 
in staunch refusal to grow the electorate. And you've talked about this with me before, and we've talked about this together. And it is why I actually think that Trump is, again, I do think he'll ultimately be the Republican nominee, but he is ultimately in trouble because he's not shown any interest ever in growing his base. If you look at Biden, it's the standard version. Like when he wins, the first speech he makes is inclusive and reaches out to people who didn't vote for him. I mean, that's that's true of Richard Nixon. It's true of Ronald Reagan. It's true of all of these people. It's the very first thing they do. And true of Bill Clinton. And by the way, with Bill Clinton, the big group to reach for was the Ross Perot voter. You know, there was a giant third party vote in 1992. Bill Clinton gets elected with 43% of the vote. That wasn't very comfortable. So he spends every day trying to talk to the Perot voter, you know, while also trying to hold on to what he had uh, with voters. And that's how he got reelected. It's just the way it works. And so the tension that people have to learn to live with now is that you have a 53% sane population. Okay, the CBS poll shows that 53% of Americans disagree with Donald Trump that immigrants are poisoning the blood of America. Okay, so that means 53% is your maximum number of sane people in America, 53%. That's it. And so Biden doesn't get to work with 70% of the population, potentially. 53% is the absolute maximum that he could get if every single person who thought that voted for him. And the trouble is, that many of the people who disagree with Trump on poisoning the blood of America also want lower taxes, so, you know, or other things, right, that Biden's not going to give them. So the maximum spot you can get to in these elections at most is 50.1 percent. And so they're going to be close. They're going to always be close. And it's ridiculous, you know, that Donald Trump should have like a closer he should lose more narrowly than Jimmy Carter lost is kind of ridiculous, but that's the country you live in now. But, you know, you notice that the Republican side is completely comfortable with this. They're 100% comfortable with this. They know that when you're landing this plane, that the wheels are going to scrape the top of the mountaintops, but they don't care about how close it is. Nobody on the Republican side is worried about how alienating Trump is, how unpopular Trump is. In fact, no one on the Republican side is urging Trump to do something to appeal to these voters the way everybody on the Democratic side has a suggestion to Joe Biden <laughs> about how he has to appeal to voters who aren't quite with him just yet. There's never a suggestion about that on, on the Trump side. And that's a, this is a guy, you know, who lost by, you know, 7 million votes or something last time. And no one's saying to him, hey, you got you to do better than that. Why do you think that is? There's this interesting professionalism about voting on the Republican side. They are politicians. We now know it more than ever that the Republican voter is a politician. You know, I used to say this to people that, you know, during the Clinton years, but other times that, you know, one of the one of the things I didn't want people to have to become was a politician themselves when they went into the voting booth. And so, you know, I used to, you know, welcomely encourage people who thought they wanted to vote for a third party or make some statement with their vote, especially if they lived in New York or California, because it won't matter in the Electoral College. 
but by all means do so because you shouldn't be forced into becoming a politician with your vote. Well, Republicans never bought that, right? And so the Republicans were never voting for Ralph Nader or anything like that. But Democrats were, and I certainly did many times, you know, vote for third party candidates. But I always voted in Massachusetts, New York, or California. So my vote never mattered. It's never mattered once in my life, the presidential vote. And so I could play around with it any way I wanted to. But Republican voters were, were already politicians. They were already making that calculation of, yeah, you know, this guy's not perfect. Romney's not perfect, but I'm with him. McCain's not perfect, but I'm voting for him. Many Republicans definitely did not think Ronald Reagan was perfect, but, you know, okay, we're with him, you know. And the Democrats have always been more ambitious than that, much less willing to come to that final decision as a voter to be a politician. They often have not chosen to do that. And it's in the nature of the way these two parties vote. And the it's it's a riskier thing on the Democratic side. And that's how Richard Nixon became president in 1968, because, you know, people thought, young voters thought that, uh, you know, Humphrey and Nixon were the same. Turned out they weren't. I certainly believe that. I was a little kid at the time. I was hearing it from everybody. You know, all my older brothers, you know, Humphrey and Nixon's the same. Okay. You know, so I didn't, I didn't care. But I mean, as a little kid that Hubert Humphrey lost, I didn't, I didn't know that what was at stake. And so the notion of lesser of two evils voting was a very common understanding of the way it works in a two-party system. It doesn't work that way in Israel. You get to vote for exactly what you think. And in parliamentary systems, you get to do that. But in, in our system, which was set up specifically to avoid the kind of coalition stuff that occurs in parliaments, the idea, you know, lesser of two evils was what I was looking at on ballots pretty much most of my life. You know, it's like I wasn't enthusiastic about what the menu choice was. And so I think one of the Obama effects, I think, might be, especially with younger voters, voters who cast their first vote for Obama, is that they get to idealize presidential voting. They get to go, oh, no, he, I, I, got, I voted for a perfect candidate. I agreed with him on everything. It's like, well, Wow, I never had that experience, <laughs> you know, and that's pretty amazing. The Republicans are very used to this, that you vote for what's in front of you and, you know, you take the one thing they're serving on the menu and you don't complain, you know, and Democrats, especially the younger voters, I think, who got had that Obama experience of idealizing their vote is they feel weird about how come how come I don't feel idealizing in my vote for Joe Biden? And so in the end, in, in September, October, November, I think the focus on lesser of two evils will, will be pretty clear. I don't think there's going to be that Humphrey-Nixon mistake again, because Trump is so much more vividly bad, even than Nixon was in 1968. And he was pretty bad looking in 1968, but Trump is much worse. And so you know, we had a voter interviewed in New Hampshire last night on MSNBC <laughs> who said she's heavily left, described herself as heavily left, and then said she would, of course, vote for Nikki Haley over Joe Biden. Well, you're not heavily left or you have a little more homework to do. I know for a fact, absolute certainty. In fact, I want to track down that voter and bring her on in October and ask her, you know, how she's feeling because she's not going to vote for Republican judges and Republican Supreme Court just justices. She's not. And she's not going to vote for a Republican candidate who has zero sympathies or, or no sense whatsoever that there should be any restraint ever suggested to the Israeli military. She's not going to vote for that candidate. 
No, of course not. Thank you so much, Lawrence. This is really great. Thank you. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances and the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. 
Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Amanda Lipman is the co-founder of Run For Something. Welcome back to Fast Politics, my MVP of the week, Amanda Littman. I'm always, always happy to be here, Molly. Last week was a big week for Run For Something because yet again, a lot of your candidates took the stage and were shown to be just superstars. Can we talk about Congresswoman Crockett? Ugh. Jasmine Crockett from the great state of Texas is just killing it in the best possible way. You know, Run for Something worked with her in her first race for the Texas State House. And when she won the seat there, she was one of the leaders pushing Greg Abbott and Republicans, um, especially against voter suppression and the horrific bills they were trying to pass and ultimately did pass in Texas. She became one of the first Run for Something alum to take a seat in Congress and has over and over and over again proven why it really matters to have young, diverse progressives who show up differently and lead differently and do not give a single fuck about what the norms are in terms of civility and is really ready to hold people accountable for their actions. She's, a, she's an all-star. So one of the things about the Congresswoman is she actually had a really, I think, appropriate background for Congress. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah. So Jasmine um, was a civil rights attorney. She was a public defender. She started her own law firm. She took on a bunch of pro bono cases. She originally ran for the Texas State House back in 2019 in a special election and then was able to run for Congress again in a special election after Congresswoman Bernice Johnson announced she wasn't going to seek re-election. She was in a competitive primary. She hadn't won the general. She's like exactly the kind of person you want in office. She is really values driven. She's super smart. And most importantly, I think she's like very clearly able to call out the bullshit when she sees it in a way that it makes, brings so much fresh energy, especially to the hearings that she's doing. Yeah, I mean, she just, it's not business as usual, right? It's really people's lives. Mm -hmm. And she understands like really intimately, I think, and inherently the value of making a scene. Like, I think this is Republicans have been really good at, especially in these congressional hearings over the years, that like going viral, not is like, it's a good thing because it brings attention to an issue you're trying to bring. She knows that like, she didn't get into this to wait her turn, that some people might want her to stay quiet, but she is just deeply ready to cause a little good trouble, I guess, is the best way of saying it. The Oversight Committee was set up by Republicans to be good on television, right? And to make viral moments that they could then fundraise off of. And what Hakeem did, which was smart, was he then put on people on the Democratic side who could also do that. The Congresswoman is really still new. So I think it's really valuable. But one of the things I wanted to ask you, too, is this is a case of a candidate. She comes from a red state that might have a swingy future. We've talked a lot about how important it is. You and I have talked a lot about how important it is to run people in seats, even when you might not win. Can you talk about the importance of that? Yes. So I think Congressman Crockett is a really good example of the voters in her community are going to show up for her because they're excited by her. And we're seeing the same thing happen in districts across the country, even in places where we don't always come out on top. Mm -hmm. uh, simply fielding candidates and fielding candidates who voters can get excited about, especially at the most local levels, state house, state senate, city council, school board, can really gin up turnout. 
Um, we did studies on this back in 2020. And we looked at the presidential election and state legislative races and the governor's races and found that simply fielding a candidate for a state legislative race in summer we hadn't before, which historically have been a lot of districts that had gone uncontested, um, can increase turnout for the top of the ticket in that district by anywhere between a half a percent and close to two and a half percent. That's a margin of victory. And it makes a lot of sense. Like these local candidates are knocking doors. They're having personal conversations with voters. They are much more relatable in many ways than the top of the ticket, whatever that is in that place. They are really running strong grassroots driven campaigns, especially the folks that run for something works with. And it's much easier, I think, to connect those races to your day to day life. Like, yes, obviously, what happens in D.C. is incredibly important. But what happens to your schools and the streets you drive on and the cost of your home, all of that is being determined at the local level. And you get to really have a conversation with the person who's making a decision about it. And so let us talk about your theory of the case when it comes to the 2024 election and how down ballot candidates could help the top of the ticket. Yeah, I think we're going to see this, especially in 2024, when, as we now know, it is going to be Trump versus Biden. Many of us have known this for a while, but I think it's like really starting to sink in with the Iowa behind us. It's going to be Trump versus Biden round two. And there's a lot of people who aren't that excited about it. That's OK. You don't necessarily have to be excited to show up at the polls, but you do have to show up. And I think it's really good to give people a reason besides the presidency. So one of the things Run for Something is really focusing on this year is making sure we're recruiting and supporting candidates everywhere, but especially in these places where there's really top of the ticket consequences. So you know, we expect to work with more than 850 candidates this year. Over 135 of them are likely to be focused exclusively in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, knowing that the Electoral College will likely be decided in those three key states. We're also thinking a lot about where our school board candidates in California and New York can help maybe spurn up turnout for the congressional races, where our Local folks in Montana can help John Tester increase his turn, help hold the Senate, hopefully. You know, all of this makes a difference in an election that will likely be decided by tens of thousands of votes, if not less. When you talk about school boards, we really saw what can happen with school boards. And ultimately, the uh, the Moms for Liberty crew really did just get creamed. But you were involved in that. So talk about that. Yeah, one for something um, had a 72% win rate for our school board races in 2023. Moms for Liberty had maybe in the 30 percentage range, a third of their folks won. 30 too much. Yeah, like they're not more popular. There's not. Booking, not popular. Talking about furries in schools, not popular. Distracting from the issues like teacher pay and facilities funding and how we're teaching our kids to read, not popular. When we we can win. So it's why Run for Something is really thinking about candidate recruitment, especially right now when the deadlines are coming up uh, week after week. It is almost too late to run for office, but probably not too late, depending on where you are. And if you're a woman, you need to be told, just remind us that statistic, because I think that's so important. You know, there's research that says women need to be asked seven times before they run for office. So the joke goes, uh, men don't need to be asked at all. They'll tell you when they're running and ask you for money. Right. So, you know, if you're listening to this, I'm asking you to run. I'm asking you to run seven times over and we'll help you if you decide to get on the ballot. Yeah. And and you'll always be better than Dean Phillips. 
Always. The bar is so low, you will always be there. (laughs) Tell me about some of the other races that we should be watching. If you are listening to this and you're thinking about running, what are the low-hanging fruit, the kind of small races that make a big difference? Yeah. So I would definitely be looking at school board races. There are, you know, 24,000 of them happening this year that are going to be incredibly important and that will do a big push towards turnout at the top of the ticket. We know Republicans especially are investing pretty intensely in school board races in California, specifically to help their congressional folks. Um, I'd also take a look at things like mayor and city council races in Phoenix, Arizona, and Maricopa County and Scottsdale, where there's some really critical turnout that could happen. We're looking, of course, at races in Missouri, where there's an exciting governor's race and also a ton of local elections there. There's city council and mayorship races in some of the bigger places in North Carolina that can make a difference. Obviously, there's a bunch of stuff happening in Ohio, especially a state Supreme Court race. There's likely to be some ballot initiatives happening. There are local elections happening all across Texas, including positions that directly oversee the election, like sheriff and tax assessor and county commissions, um, which we're counting on the future of democracy. It would be good if people (laughs) held that. And I would say in Wisconsin, you know, there's municipal elections happening this April that will make a difference in what's happening in November. So all of these is the way to win the big ones is to win these small ones. Yeah. And I think it's worth, I mean, we're talking about California. So in 2022, the red wave, right, where we were told there would be a red wave and Democrats would get their asses handed to them. One of the ways that Republicans won was they won these in Biden districts in California and New York. Uh, So is that what you're talking about when you're talking about Republicans running school board candidates? Today's in California. Exactly right. And we have heard this sort of through the grapevine that they have been very intentionally focusing on work in California. I just saw an email from the Leadership Institute in the last week or two. They're starting up all of these trainings for activists in Southern California, specifically for school board races and local races, but hmm, coincidentally located in the same places there are competitive congressional seats. That's how they're going to try and hold the House. And we're going to be there to stop them. Right. And I think that's really important. I mean, it's funny because it's like so many of these races, if you look at 22, I'm thinking about George Santos, right? George Santos won that race because there was a lack of democratic enthusiasm and a lack of investigation in a guy who really read as pretty sketchy, even from early on. That needs to not happen again in 24. And I think like the thing to keep in mind here is people are counting on like the Biden versus Trump you know, to do all the work here to get people to show up at the polls. But in places like basically everywhere outside of the core electoral battleground states, Biden's not going to have a campaign presence, nor should he. That's not his job. His job is to win the White House. His campaign job is to win the White House. They're not going to have organizers on the ground in some of these suburban districts in New York and California, nor will they have folks on the ground in places like Montana, where we need to win to hold the Senate. Right. Oh, because it's not a presidential. Joe Biden's not going to win Montana and it would be foolish campaign to spend resources to try and win Montana. But we can absolutely help John Tester by investing in city council races, school board races, county offices, um, the kinds of positions that maybe if the candidate themselves doesn't win, but they get an extra 200 voters to show up for them that wouldn't otherwise, that can help John Tester win that state and hold that state. So that's what we're looking at across the country is making sure that we have really good candidates running in as many places as possible to do the kind of communications and organizing work that we know wins elections, especially knowing that the Biden campaign isn't and shouldn't necessarily be everywhere that we also need to win. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, it's funny, it's we're talking about this, but it is true. Like the Biden campaign can only work in the states where Biden needs to win or will win. Right. And those are states like Arizona. Right. States like and they're not states like Ohio, which is a Senate seat that Democrats desperately need to keep. Exactly right. And like, I don't fault the Biden campaign for that. They're doing exactly the right thing, investing as much as they can in the key states they need to win the Electoral College. We, as a community of people who also care about other things, need to be investing everywhere else. Yeah. I want to ask you about Florida, because I feel like one of the things that you you're not on the ground reporting. That's not your job, obviously. But you do get to see where candidates are coming from. And I have a suspicion, like if you looked at Arizona, Sheriff Joe Arpaio caused a great deal of a lot of really cool candidates came out of what was really bad and hurtful anti-immigrant policy from this deranged sheriff. Are you seeing a similar dynamic out of Florida? You know, we are seeing some, especially on the education side of things, you know, superintendents in Florida are elected positions that are countywide. School boards in these districts tend to be really big because they're countywide in many places. Um, the supervisors of elections are countywide. They have a lot of power. All of these positions, we are seeing some really, like, just batshit stuff. Like, they, I just saw, I think, earlier last week, they're banning Bill O'Reilly's book. They're banning the dictionary they're banning Bible. They are banning, you know, novels that are like core to canon and foundational text for for so many, especially teenagers. They're going over the line. This shit's not popular, but we have to make sure fighting against them. And one of the Florida is one of the places we're really thinking about doing more school board work in the years to come because you know Ron DeSantis is not going to be president, but he's going to stay governor of Florida for a while and. We want to make sure that he is being held accountable for the political machine that he has built there, which includes a lot of these school board candidates. We had this candidate who's running for Senate in Florida. Her name is Debbie Powell, and she's running against um, really Rick Scott is the guy from Mars Attack. Do you think that there is any chance for like a kind of miraculous backlash? I mean, like a sort of brown back kind of phenomenon the way that it happened in Kansas and Florida? Yeah, I think anything is possible. We got to make sure we have folks on the ground having the conversations to hold <laughs> the Florida Republican Party accountable. Florida Democrats have been in a tough spot. You know, it's become sort of a tautological truism. They don't win and then they have a hard time raising the money so that they really can't win. But we're going to be there for the long haul and hope to be part of the, the Florida comeback story was such that it could be. Yeah, that would be really exciting. Tell me other states where you're sort of seeing stuff or where you feel that there's something brewing. Uh, I think there are so many places where there are really exciting candidates we're working with this year. Obviously, we have amazing folks down in Texas. We're already talking to people who are running in 2025 down in Texas, which is good. We kind of need that long runway to have those conversations. We've got amazing folks in Illinois, Missouri, Ohio. There's incredible leadership in Mayor Justin Bibb in Cleveland. I'm starting to build that bench there. We have really cool folks who have run and won in Indiana, of all places. It's Mike Pence's home state, but he's, he's not going to be on the ballot there. But we have some amazing local folks who are coming up and really like showing what could be possible for an Indiana Democrat. I'm really excited about our folks in Nevada, Colorado, Washington State, upstate New York. 
uh, Connecticut. You know, really the cool part about this work is there's so many exciting people running in every single state who give me a reason to think that, yeah, like the present is kind of bleak, but the future, if we get there, will be really bright. Yeah, we just have to get there. I think that Biden can beat Trump. I have a fair amount of confidence in that. But I do think that there are a lot of young progressives who might not be super excited by Biden for any number of reasons, and that this would be a way to theoretically get them to turn out, right? That's exactly right. And I think especially for young voters who are correctly, in many cases, furious at the Biden administration, like, we need them to show up for other reasons. And if they also cast the ballot for Biden, that's fine. They don't have to be about it. They just got to show up at the polls. And the more we can give them a reason to be on the presidency, the better. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. This is the do you want to have elections election? Mm-hmm. And like, do you want to have elections elections? Do you want to have reproductive rights elections? Do you want to have the right to marry who you love, to read what you want, to you know be able to buy or rent a home in a place you want to live? That's what's at stake here. And the more that our local folks can really communicate that, the better. Thank you so much, Amanda. Anytime, Molly. Ian Basson is the executive director of Protect Democracy. Welcome to Fast Politics, Ian. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So this is going to air tomorrow. We will be in uh, this kind of post traumatic malaise of the realization that most of us, I think, knew this was coming. But there is something spectacularly grim about the reality that Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. I think we're all in a state of denial, even those of us who pay excruciatingly close attention to these matters. But nationally, there seems to be an inability or an unwillingness to look at and digest hard things. And so you see this, I think, within the Republican ranks where people are wishing it away. Columnists writing fantasy stories about, well, it could be somebody else or maybe he's not so bad or all of that. And you see it in the pro-democracy coalition seeming to not yet be able to digest the reality that we are going to be facing an election this year in which someone who tried to overturn the results of the vote last time and is a facially patent authoritarian is going to be one of the candidates that has a 50% chance or better of winning. Let's talk about where you are involved in this. Tell us what you're up to. So I run an organization called Protect Democracy which is a cross-ideological anti-authoritarianism group. And I come to this out of a background as a, as a government lawyer. I served for the first three years of the Obama administration in the White House Counsel's Office, where part of my job was counseling executive branch officials on the rules that govern executive branch behavior and trying to make sure that we didn't violate them. And when I did that work, I inherited a set of rules from the Bush administration. And if I had questions about them, I called Emmett Flood, did my job for the Bush administration. If Emmett, I couldn't answer it. We called the lawyer who did it for the Clinton administration. It didn't matter whether you were serving under a Republican or a Democratic president. The rules were the same from administration to administration. And when Donald Trump was elected in 2016, it marked a turning point for our country because unlike anyone else who was running, from Bernie Sanders on the left to Ted Cruz on the right, Donald Trump doesn't believe in our constitutional representative democratic form of government. He aspires Mm -hmm. to be a dictator. He admires the world's leading autocrats. And so it, it was a moment that called for 
beginning to assemble a coalition that would try to protect the foundations of our democracy. And that coalition needs to include progressives and moderates and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans. And our organization does include all of those people to stand up for the right of a free people to continue to self-govern and every four years to be able to have a free and fair choice of who to elect. And that is what is in danger right now. And so my role in this is to be part of the coalition that tries to protect democracy for the next generation. Yeah, I'm thinking about what it was like when government lawyers just did their job with no partisanship, right? I mean, Emmett Flood wasn't going to tell you, you know, yeah, we just threw that stuff out because we weren't interested in it or we let our boss take home classified documents. As any lawyer who served an executive or a president will tell you, every president tries to push the bounds of presidential power. If you look at a ledger at the end of an administration, this is true for Democrats, Republicans, going back to the beginning of the Republic. There are a bunch of issues in which they tried to push the bounds, and then they said, no, you know what? This system probably shouldn't allow me to do that. And they relent. And there's a bunch where they push the bounds and they said, oh, you know, maybe this is one where I can kind of push a little bit and get a little bit more power for the executive. And there's always a couple of examples on each side of the ledger for every president. What is fundamentally different about Donald Trump is he doesn't believe there should be any restrictions on his power at all. Mm -hmm. We're waking up on this sort of dawn of another bout of authoritarianism. And what can we do? The way we at least think about it is that our democracy coalition in this country needs to essentially do three things if we're going to survive this moment. And when I say survive this moment, I don't just mean Donald Trump, because Donald Trump is riding a wave of authoritarianism that has been sweeping the world in the 21st century. You know, democracy had been on the rise in the last quarter of the 20th century, and then sometime in the early aughts, it plateaued and began to go into reverse. And so you've seen countries that had been making progress democratically, countries like Venezuela, countries like Poland, countries like Hungary or Turkey or even India backsliding into more illiberal and authoritarian forms of government. And that's happening here as well. So in order for us to survive this moment, which goes beyond Donald Trump, he has, he has symptom, not cause of this, although he poses an acute threat because he is an extremely talented demagogue, we essentially need to do three things. The first is just put the fire out that is engulfing our, our house. And that is making sure that the 2024 election is free and fair, and that ideally a candidate wins who believes in our system of government, who is pro-liberal representative democracy. And that's, that's the first challenge. The second is that our founders anticipated that there would be self-interested tyrants who would try to aggrandize power for themselves. They built the Constitution in response to King George being a tyrant, and they built a system of overlapping checks and balances and guardrails to constrain tyranny. And those worked relatively well in Trump's first term, not by themselves. They weren't self-executing because people used them, but they were exposed as perhaps not being as strong as we would like them. So the second thing we need to do is we need to strengthen those guardrails. And we need to do that ideally without an autocrat in power, but certainly in the instance that we might have an autocrat in power. And the third thing we need to do is there's a reason why we're in this mess. And that is that the current structures of our system are in many ways incentivizing this behavior. Kevin McCarthy and, and the other Republicans who behaved in incredibly irresponsible anti-democratic ways, in a lot of ways, they were doing the rational thing if you had their set of incentives. 
And that's because the current structures of our system, the two-party duopoly, the first-past-the-post-electoral system that we have, where the gerrymandering of districts, the, the ways that primaries dictate who wins general elections, those are all incentivizing this behavior, the electoral college. And so we've got to change some of those structures. Over the last 150 years, every other advanced democracy in the world has updated its system to reflect the fact that we've all learned what makes a better system. The only country that hasn't done that is ours. Steve Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, the authors of the book, How Democracies Die, have a new book out called Tyranny of the Minority, where they talk about the fact that we as a country are advising other nations on how to update their democracies to be more resilient. And we're not taking that medicine ourselves. It's like a sommelier saying, drink this, but I won't drink it, right? We need to update our system. And so we need to do all three of those things. And we've been working on all of those fronts as an organization, but we've got to do it really as a country. Really good point. I'm curious to know what that would look like. Give me a few ideas here. Let's get specific. So when we talk about protecting the free and fair election, we're talking about a couple different aspects of this. I'll just name two of them. One is elections only work when you have a healthy information ecosystem where we're all having a debate on a shared set of facts. And one of the challenges we faced, obviously, in recent years is the rampant spread of disinformation and misinformation. Misinformation being innocently shared information that's inaccurate, disinformation being maliciously shared information that is known to be inaccurate, but people are spreading it anyway for their own corrupt purposes. And we've seen a proliferation of both of those, and we've got to check that. And so we have a project called Law for Truth, where we have litigated a number of defamation cases against some people who have spread uh, injurious and false information about elections. So recently, people may have seen this in the news, our incredibly brave clients, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, two brave election workers in the state of Georgia who were falsely accused of corrupting the 2020 election, won a $148 million verdict against Rudy Giuliani on the basis of things that he said about them that were determined in a court of law to be uh, false and defamatory. We recently also won a decision clearing a motion to dismiss in a similar case on behalf of the Republican recorder in Maricopa County, a guy by the name of Stephen Richer, who was, we allege, was falsely accused by Carrie Lake of corrupting the 2022 gubernatorial election that she lost. And the court recently ruled that we can proceed with that case. We have a number of other cases like this where we are trying to do what our what the legal system has allowed for hundreds of years, which is people who are falsely accused and in a way that injures them materially have recourse through the justice system. And what we believe will happen is if enough of these cases get litigated and people are held accountable, you will start to see the deterrent of tort law work to check some of this disinformation. But the, we also need to worry about the structures of our system. So on January 6, 2021, during the storming of the Capitol, what was Congress doing? It was counting electoral college ballots pursuant to an incredibly vague and arcane law from the 1880s called the Electoral Count Act. And that law was incredibly poorly drafted, and it allowed for bad faith actors to try to put forward disingenuous interpretations of the law that led to a lot of the, the conflagration that we saw on January 6th. And so one of the things that we did... Pause for a second. So that is that idea that uh, Mike Pence could 
opt in another slate of electors. He could refuse to certify. He could. That was sort of where we had Mike Lee sending, you know, Mark Meadows an email saying maybe we could do this, we could do that, we could do other slates. Yes, continue. That's right. And and so one of the things that seemed obvious after that tragic day was well, we should really update that law and make it incredibly clear. For example, that the vice president doesn't have the power to simply decide who the next president should be. And so working with a coalition, including great groups like the Campaign Legal Center and Issue One and some, some terrific lawyers from the right and left, like Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith, Ben Ginsburg, we advised Congress on how they could reform that law. And ultimately, a, a bipartisan working group came together and passed the Electoral Count Reform Act, which was signed into law by President Biden in December of 2022. That strengthens that process to hopefully avoid some of the problems that we saw before. And then going beyond that, we've now been working with state legislatures around the country to update their laws to align with the federal new Electoral Count Reform Act to have a smoother process where there are less opportunities for bad faith actors to try to take us off the rails. So for example, in Michigan, they've already done that. We're working on it in some other states as well. So those are some of the ways in which, you know, sort of in the, in the nitty gritty details of how our electoral system operates, we can try to strengthen the system in time for this election, make sure that there's less opportunity for shenanigans and, and foul play. And we can talk about some of the things that we could do on, on some of the other fronts as well. So I want to just talk about this idea of being able to take out some of that, the sort of more vague language that Trump and his people tried to use in 2020. Do you think, and again, I know this is probably not going to happen, but I mean, where are you on the 14th Amendment and Trump being pushed off the ballot? You know, I've really come around on this one. I started off concerned. So, but after January 6th, we did an analysis of the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And our conclusion internally was that as a purely legal matter, if you were sort of just an academic interpreting the law, that it's even clear to us that it applied to Donald Trump, that by any definition, Donald Trump engaged in insurrection and that the purpose of the 14th Amendment after the Civil War was to disqualify anybody who had taken an oath and done that in order to preserve our republic from threats like the Confederacy rising again, and that he should be disqualified. But our concern was that, you know, and this has been obviously talked about a lot recently, that in other countries, that tool of disqualifying opponents is one that is used in undemocratic places. And we were worried about what it would look like if that tool got, a, if that sword got unsheathed here. But I've come around to the view that I absolutely think now the Supreme Court should uphold the Colorado decision and disqualify Donald Trump. And, and let me say why for a couple of reasons. So one, the concern that, well, wait a minute, this is a Pandora's box. And if, if that's done to Trump, won't Texas simply disqualify Joe Biden? Well, the truth is that every law that we have on our book can be misused by bad faith actors in circumstances for which it was not intended. But that does not lead us as a nation to simply decline to apply the law as it exists in situations for which it was designed. If we were to do that, then not only would we never enforce laws in appropriate circumstances because of fears that they could be misused in others, but we would give the worst actors a veto over ever being able to be held accountable merely by threatening that if they're held accountable, their allies are going to do it to someone else. If you were to give bad faith actors that veto, you would essentially put people like Donald Trump and every other criminal in the country above the law. And that cannot be the way that a system should operate. The second reason I think it's really important the Supreme Court apply the text of the Constitution as it is written is because 
there is this fantasy out there that somehow if the Supreme Court were to disqualify uh, Donald Trump, he and his supporters would go ballistic and cause all sorts of chaos. But here's the thing. We know they're going to do that anyway if he loses at the ballot box. They did that in 2020. So this fantastical notion that if we withhold ourselves from applying the law, if the Supreme Court somehow were to just look the other way at the text of the Constitution, then our crisis would be resolved in some more peaceful, pleasant way through some other mechanism is a fantasy. That is not going to happen. The truth is that Trump has launched an anti-democratic movement in this country that is going to wreak havoc on this country no matter what. They are going to wreak havoc on this country if he has returned to power and governs as an autocrat. They are going to wreak havoc in many ways if he is defeated at the ballot box. And yes, they are likely to wreak havoc if the Supreme Court disqualifies him. And given that they're going to wreak havoc one way or the other, there's no way out. Only way is through, and we should apply the Constitution as written. That's what the Supreme Court is for. That's what the law says. The Supreme Court should do it. And if there is to be essentially a prudential decision to say, you know, even if the law says that he should be disqualified, he should run anyway. Well, you know what? The 14th Amendment says that decision is in Congress's hands, not the court's. Because the other provision of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is that Congress can remove the disqualification by a two-thirds vote of both houses. And that meant that the framers of the Constitution understood that there might be times when we might want to say, even if this person did engage in insurrection, we should let the voters decide. And the framers very clearly delegated that power to Congress, not the court. And so if the court feels that it, it just would be better for the nation if Trump were allowed to run, then that's Congress's job, not the court's. Right, exactly. In this larger anti-democratic movement, so when you look at the exit polls from last night, a very large percentage of Trump supporters... And again, you know, this is a percentage of a percentage, but a very large percentage of Trump supporters believe that Joe Biden did not win the 2020 election. And if you read in Politico today, there was a really good article about these poll workers who just cannot explain how things are on Earth One to these people in Trump world. So again, this is something I spend almost all my time thinking about it because I'm such a nerd. But what do you do here? How do you deprogram these people? Well, they didn't come up with those ideas on their own. They were given those ideas, first and foremost, by Donald Trump, who has been pumping this toxicity into our body politic. Now, he has had all sorts of help in doing that from allies within his party, from a conservative media ecosystem that is doing it. But he is the originator of that big lie. And frankly, I think if he were no longer pumping that lie into people's minds, the rest of the ecosystem would not be nearly as effective or even have the incentive to do so to the degree that he does. And so I don't think you get out of this death spiral of deep distrust in our system and in elections while the primary agent that is infecting our system with that virus is out there continuing to spread it. And that's another reason why the Supreme Court, I think, would be wise to apply the law as written and uphold the Colorado decision against Donald Trump, because so long as he is out there in some capacity as an active candidate and potentially president of our system, he is eroding the very fabric of our democracy. And I'm not suggesting that the Supreme Court should twist a legal interpretation to remove him his him from being candidate. Not at all. I'm suggesting that given that the law clearly does apply to him, they shouldn't bend over backwards to 
not apply the law as written to him precisely because he is the person that the Constitution was written to deal with, someone who is fundamentally not committed to our system of government. And only once he is he no longer has a stranglehold over the Republican Party can you hope to rebuild the underlying fabric of our society, bring people back together again, have people rooted in a sense of shared reality, have people committed to a common project. So long as he is out there unleashing his political virus on the scene, it is going to be very, very hard to cure the body politic. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for having me. I am optimistic, notwithstanding all of this sort of doomed speaking, that at root, this country is a pro-democratic country. This country has, in multiple elections over the last several years, made pro-democracy choices. I think it will again. And it's thanks to people having conversations like this one. And now, your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jungfast, who would have guessed that Trump couldn't keep his mouth shut about E. Jean Carroll? I will tell you uh, this. Everyone? I could have definitely guessed it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if we went on the betting market, this would be the safest bet in the entire world. Yes, exactly. I don't know how many gag orders he has. He's gagged. He's ordered. He's ordered. He's gagged. And how many trials? And yet he still can't keep it. So here he is. He calls the case attempted extortion based on fabricated lies and political shenanigans. Jesus Christ. Anyway, let me point out how much he is just digging himself into yet another hole and while his supporters are on Earth 2, the rest of us are on Earth 1. And on Earth 1, the guy who got charged with defamation will get charged with more defamation. And for that, Donald Trump, killer of democracy, winner of the Iowa caucus, defendant against 91 criminal charges, is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. 
Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.